We're continuing a series on the Psalms and drawn to the reality that the Psalms are this just raw, honest display of genuine relationship with God. No matter where you're at in your walk with God, you can find a Psalm that you can relate to. They are very emotional. There are high highs and low lows and everything in between. And it's a really empowering and, I think, freeing display of the rawness that God allows us and invites us to have with him. We don't have to have it all together to come to him and talk with him in prayer. He can process, he can filter all of our unfiltered stuff. And I feel like that's particularly attractive right now because this, the world and the, the tumult that is upon us and the cultural upheaval and the messages that are coming our way daily, if nothing else, they play on our emotions. They cause strong emotions where we can be all over the place within the, the course of a day. And it's so helpful to see the, a king, a King David, in fact, have those similar type emotions, but then go to God in prayer and process them with God and ultimately go to God's heart and that's our question is, what's, what's your word say, God, about all these emotions? So this morning, I just want to be just honest and say, let's talk about enemies. Because if there's one thing, another thing that we're seeing right now, it's the world is trying to tell us we need to draw clear lines in the sand about who our friends are and who our enemies are. There's a regular message that says, you need to be clear about the us versus them. The me versus you. Who's on your side and who's not? Now's the time to make that clear. And, and that's a regular message. Look for it. It's there all the time. So that you know who you are and you got your thoughts or beliefs or political perspective or whatever it may be. And everyone out there is against you. Draw those lines in the sand. Know who your enemies are. So it, it makes me honestly reminded of David because he actually talks about enemies a lot. Jesus talks about enemies too, and we'll get there. So I want to take us, though, just to the, the raw emotion. There are many Psalms where David talks about his enemies, but let's just go to Psalm 5. And let's see how David cries out to God about his enemies. Psalm 5, 1 to 12. To the choir master for the flutes, which I thought was kind of funny because he's about to rail on his enemies. Like, and by the way, guys, it's like, it's like, like what about like the drums? I don't know. Anyways, for the flutes, David says. Verse 1, give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate 
all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me, for there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protections over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. How many of you can relate to David's cry for justice against his enemies? If we're honest, we, it, we should all relate. There's these feelings of frustration and angst when something wrong has been done to us. And it seems there's, there's no justice yet taking place. There's a, there's a primal cry that says, that's not right. Where's justice? And in David's very typical, unfiltered, raw fashion, he brings it before God. And his, his, his essential message is, you're the God of justice, so do something here, God. In verse 10, he says, make them bear their guilt. That's a call for justice. They are guilty. Bring it on their heads. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. David is tapping into something that he holds very dear to be true, which is that God is a God of justice who does not turn a blind eye to evil. I mean, what, would, what hope would the world have if such atrocities that, that we can see in the history books and see in our, in our present world in various places where evil happens and it's horrible, there's rape and pillage and murder and racism and all sorts of clear evils throughout history and in the present world, what would our world be? What would our hope be for the future? Could things get any better? What would, what would our eternal hope be if God looked at all of that evil and was like, yeah, so what? We would have no hope. <laughs> As David cries out later in Psalm 89, 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. If we can't hope in God that he is against evil and will bring justice, then we have no hope. So David taps into this very raw, primal, universal cry that when wrong has been done, when evil has been perpetrated, rightly coming out of us is the, the, the emotion of that's not okay. 
And something needs to be done about it. Justice needs to be done. So how does God, or excuse me, how does David want God to respond to evil? In Psalm 5, it's very clear he wants justice. And many other psalms, in fact. It's very raw. It's very real. And now I want to take a look at Psalm 51, which is a very, very interesting contrast. Specifically, a contrast of how David wants God to deal with evil. Evil has been done. But David's tune is very different in this prayer, specifically in regards to what God should do with evil. There's no question that evil is the topic, but, God, but David's prayer is so different. As the heading of the song indicates in Psalm 51, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So the context of this psalm, this prayer, this cry out to God in regards to evil, the context is Nathan has confronted David as a prophet. In fact, he more than confronted, he exposed David. He exposed David's evil of committing adultery, of essentially conspiring to kill Bathsheba's husband Uriah by forcing him to go to the front lines in the army. And then David absolutely intentionally lied about all of it to try to cover it up, cover his sins. And Nathan, after a period of time, under God's Holy Spirit direction, says, I've had enough of my king behaving in such a way. And so Nathan the prophet comes and the Holy Spirit just reveals it all and he just exposes David after David lies to his face. So it's uncomfortable sometimes when you're in the <laughs> presence of prophetic people who see through regardless. And that's exactly what happens to David. And Nathan just exposes adultery, murder, lies. Just lays it all out and David just is undone. As God's word says, all that is hidden will be exposed. David met that reality in a very humiliating way. So in that context of evil that has been exposed, this is David's cry out to God in regards to that evil. Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed or broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, 
and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud for your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good in Zion, or excuse me, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem, then you will delight in right sacrifices in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. There's a lot going on there, obviously. But can you see the huge contrast of how David asks God to deal with evil? When he's praying about the evil that his enemies have done against him, he prays, Psalm 5, verse 10, make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of their transgressions, the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they've rebelled against you. So when he's praying about the evil that his his enemies have done against him, he prays for justice. When he's praying about the evil that he has done against others, he prays, deliver me. From blood guiltness, O God. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions and cast me not away from your presence. When he's praying about the evil that he has done towards others, his prayer is for mercy. Very authentic, very raw, very real. Both are a normal part of life. Both are legitimate prayers to God. Both justice and mercy are on God's heart. But both clearly point to the need for Jesus. Both clearly point for this longing for the Messiah to to make things right, to reconcile things, to be able that God could be both just and merciful. Because if you notice here, it's clear. David wants God to be just and go get evil when it's them. But when it's me who's the evil one, now I want mercy. How how do we reconcile all this? I'm sure you felt this. This this is a very, very normal response. When we've been hurt, it's God, get them. When we hurt, it's, oh, 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 I'm so sorry, God, have mercy. How often have you prayed, God, I messed up, just get me. 
I want to bear all my guilt. May I fall because of my wickedness. Cast me out, for I am so unworthy. How many of you have prayed that with the same fire that David prays it on other people? But why is it different? We need a Savior to reconcile this. In our Messiah, Jesus, justice and mercy have kissed. It's right out of the Bible. Psalm 85.10. Loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth springs up from the earth. Righteousness looks down from heaven. There's no greater place, no greater place than these, than Jesus to see these realities fulfilled like no one before him, no one after him. Loving kindness, righteousness, peace, justice, mercy. How does all of this get reconciled in the world? In our Messiah, they have kissed. There's some... Oh, that's, that's incredible language. Remember the first time I read this verse a long time ago and it was it's just a poetic way of, of thinking about these deep realities of our world. Justice and mercy. Man, when do we need each? When's the time to go hard after justice and when's the time to bask in a glorious mercy? Justice and mercy have kissed in Jesus. Romans 3 says it like this. I recommend verses 21 through 27. It goes deep into it. One of the most important paragraphs in the Bible because it talks about justice and mercy and how can both exist? How can God, how can both exist in God? And how can he bear that out into the world? So, but to shorten it a little bit, let's just go to 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness, and righteousness and justice are right together as synonyms here in the New Testament. You'll see it in a moment. So he put Jesus forth to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. That's, that there's a lot to take in there. But it's basically saying, if Jesus didn't die on the cross and God showed mercy, then God would not be just because he just would let sin go unpunished. And how can a just God just look upon evil? I mean, we just sang a song, I'm a wretch. <laughs> how amazing grace, it saved a wretch like me, so... If you believe that, that you have committed evil against the king of kings, how is God just if he just 
wipes it away. In our world, there is outcry in the courtroom if a judge looks upon a clearly perpetrated evil and just says, you could go free. Rape, murder, adultery, perjury, those are David's sins. You can go free. You're forgiven. Where's the justice? And this verse is talking about that problem right there. That God left sins unpunished. He gave mercy. He gave salvation. So how is he a just God? In Jesus, justice and mercy have kissed. God has punished evil in Christ. That's what it's saying is that's what's happening on the cross. All of the, the just wrath that God has against injustice and evil was poured out in Christ being the sacrifice of atonement. So now God can be and is both just and merciful. It fundamentally changed the world. Because if God just executed justice on, all on everybody all the time, on all evil, we have no hope of salvation. Salvation is not based in us saying, God, may I bear the guilt of all my sin. May you please show me justice for all the evil that I've done. If he does, no one is saved. This is Romans 3, 25 and 26. We want mercy. David wants mercy. David knows he has committed evil and his only hope in that moment is not God's justice to rain down on him and take care of that evil. It's God have mercy. Blot out my sins. Don't cast me out. Have mercy. Don't give me what justice deserves. And so in Jesus, justice and mercy have kissed. And it absolutely, fundamentally changed the world forever. So God can be both just and merciful. And as we embrace that, when we, if we embrace that reality of what Christ has done on the cross, Jesus then takes it to this absolutely revolutionary new place that no one before him had ever said and no one since him has taught it or lived it like he did. He says, if you live out this new thing that I'm calling the kingdom of God and put in place this ethic of God's will done on earth as it is in heaven, here's what it looks like when we're talking about justice and mercy and enemies. Matthew 5, 43. Jesus says, you've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And right before that, he talked about, you have heard it was said, an eye for an eye. So those two quotes right there are the Old Testament, Old Covenant concept of justice. Hate your enemy, someone who's wronged you, 
There's justice that wells up and you have a hatred for them. I mean, David's crying out saying, hey, I take refuge in the fact that you hate them too, God. So give them what they deserve. Eye for an eye. It's justice. So Jesus says, you've heard that, but I say to you, and here's the new ethic of the kingdom of God, taking place where justice and mercy have kissed in the Messiah. So how do we live that out, that new reality? But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that, so that, and this is good because Jesus tells us, well, how the heck and why the heck would we do that? So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You must therefore be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So this new ethic that is absolutely revolutionary. I mean, this is one of those things that Jesus stands out among all religious leaders, voices in all of history. No one says this until after Jesus. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who wrong you. That's from Luke. And Jesus then says, but why, why? So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. And we gotta be careful here. This translation's a little unhelpful. So that you may be sons and daughters of your fathers in heaven, of your father in heaven. This is not saying so that you can earn salvation. The, the sense of it here is love your enemy so that you, may, you are being like your father in heaven. So you're showing the world as children of God, you're shining to the world what the heavenly, our heavenly father is really like. And you see that because that's the next thing he says. He says, because what does your heavenly father do? He makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He brings the rain down on the just and the unjust. In other words, God, your father, is just showering mercy on the whole world, both the good and the evil, the just and the unjust. He is showering mercy on everyone. So show the world what your father is like by being like your father to the world. Show them undeserved mercy. Love your enemy. And in Luke, where Jesus says the same thing, he finishes with this. So be merciful as your heavenly father is merciful. In other words, the call is take that same personal awareness that we all have of our own need for mercy which David displays really well, and we can all relate to it, right? And when we sin or when we 
perpetrate evil or when we get caught or when we're made aware of, wow, I have really wronged someone or I've messed up or I messed up my own life. We are, what's our gut reaction, right? It's not bear down that guilt on me. I want to pay for it. It's God have mercy. Please have mercy. Blot out my sins. Forgive me. Restore unto me a right spirit within you. I want to be connected with you. I don't, don't cast me away. All of those cries for mercy, they come out of us quickly. And Jesus is saying, bask in that. Because that is God's heart. That's the gospel. Because I've taken care of justice and mercy. They've kissed in me and it's coming soon on the cross. But now we've got the advantage to know that's, what, that's how Jesus can say these things. So he's saying, yes, bask in that awesome mercy. Soak in it. Make it the foundation of your identity. That as Romans 5 says, while we were God's enemies, he went after us. That's what we sing about. There's no wall he won't break down. While we were enemies of God, Romans 5 says, he came after us. And so the gospel is to bask in it, soak in it, love it, receive it. Let it transform your heart. Let it transform your life. Let it give you a new identity. Let it just be the awesome reality that it is of what God has made possible in Jesus. And in that same awareness that you have for your personal need for mercy, Jesus says, now extend it to others. Exactly the same kind of mercy that you want God to give you, give it to others. That is one of the most profound things that has ever been taught, ever. Who does that? <laughs> who loves their enemies well? Who prays for those who persecute them? Who does good to those who harm them? Who blesses those who abuse them? <sighs> we are in deep water here from Jesus. Jesus absolutely changes the game. What he did was remove person-to-person -person enemies. He says, in the kingdom of God perspective, people are no longer the enemies. The battle is spiritual. Satan is the enemy. And you no longer fight against your enemies. You fight for them. The battle is no longer against people. It's for them. Man, this is swimming deep. Is it not? This is swimming deep in the kingdom of God. Now, that does not in any way negate that God is still a God of justice. And there comes out of us a cry for justice against evil. That doesn't change. It absolutely does not change. And we still have hope that God hates evil and that he will deal with evil. And we can pray that justice be done. Keep doing that. 
But what Jesus says is, but now that person is no longer your enemy. You don't fight against them, you fight for them. You can fight against maybe their actions and their ideals and their mindsets, but Jesus says directly, but you're fighting for them. Just like I fought for you. Just like I broke down walls and came after you while you were my enemy. While you opposed me in every way you knew, I came after you. The Apostle Paul says it like this in Romans 12 as he's wrestling with what does this look like in our world? And I would, I would ask, you know, that's, that's kind of the takeaway question here. Is there an enemy in your life that you can stop fighting against and start fighting for? Because that is just absolutely Jesus' call. It's one of the hardest things he's ever said. It's not going to be easy at all. It is going to test the very depths of what you believe and what is mercy and how much do you really believe in undeserved favor and goodness and how much do I believe that Jesus took it all on the cross? I mean, it, it pushes deep into all that. But man, does not our world need this kind of good news right now? Does it not need people, as Jesus said, that are shining undeserved goodness out there on people who are doing evil, that from Jesus's perspective, yes, it's wrong. It's all, all of us have committed things that are evil and wrong. Yet what does he say? We saw it a couple of weeks ago. He sees the world. He says, they are lost. They are harassed. They are helpless. They need a shepherd. Are there not abundant opportunities to be sons and daughters of our father and find ways to live out absolute undeserved goodness needs to be done with wisdom needs to be done with great wisdom actually there's whole nother messages that we've given at various times in the past about this doesn't mean God says put you in a situation where you are being abused and oppressed no that's not biblical at all But he absolutely calls us into the deep end here with things like this, Luke 6. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So that's, there we go. Right out of Romans, it's still very much on God's heart that he will have vengeance against all evil. He hasn't forgot. Justice will be done. Then he says, don't do it. Don't be the one who avenges evil with evil. To the contrary, and now he quotes Jesus. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. By doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Don't overcome evil with evil. Overcome evil with good. And this is this new world that we're in, in Jesus. We're meant to look upon enemies and yes, always retain that fiery justice for wanting to see 
God take care of evil. But when it comes to our personal actions towards people, we are to remove that thought of you are my enemy and say, I'm not fighting against you. I'm somehow going to fight for you, just like God did for me. And the Bible gives a number of different specifics. It starts with prayer. Pray for them. And it's really hard to keep bitterness in your heart if you're regularly praying for someone. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And there's a whole nother reason why he says that. Our heart is not made to carry the, the, the toxic vengeance where we wait for that moment to meet out the perfect justice. And until we get it, we're holding on to vengeance. There's, there's a poison in there that's toxic for our soul. So God says, let me handle that. I haven't forgot it. It's not gonna go unpunished. I am a God of justice. Give it to me. And now you be my ambassador, my son and daughter that will give out wild levels of undeserved goodness and mercy. In the way that you pray, in the way that you do good, bless and do not curse them. Paul says, Jesus says, feed them, clothe them, do good to them. By doing so, you'll heap burning coals on their head. <laughs> Don't overcome evil with evil. You will overcome evil with good. So that's saying right there, that's the ethic of the kingdom. It's not an eye for an eye anymore. It's not when evil is done to you, you do it back and just destroy it. Overcome evil with good. It's prayer. It's action. And man, is not our world so desperate right now to stop that vicious cycle of evil. That's what Jesus addresses, an eye for an eye. It was once said after him, an eye for an eye just leaves the whole world blind. There is a vicious cycle. When you try to fix evil with evil or try to fix injustice with all that you deserve, it causes a vicious cycle. And Jesus says, in the ethic of my kingdom on earth, we break that cycle with extravagant goodness, just like I did for you. And that's what it has to constantly come back to, of God, if I'm gonna be merciful, I have to be radically in touch with the mercy that you've shown me, with the grace that you've shown me. And that will empower me with a love that is not from me, but with a love that is actually from Jesus. And now I can go be a son and a daughter. I can be like my father in heaven, where people are like, what is wrong with this dude? How could they do that? That's gotta be God. So I wanna pause there for now. This is certainly not exhaustive on this very complex topic, but let's just land where Jesus lands. That incredible challenge to live out being his sons and daughters. Who are those enemies that we can stop fighting against as people and start fighting for them? And what would that look like in each of our lives? 
Let's pray here for a minute and just listen to see what the Holy Spirit might want to say. Holy Spirit, we ask that as always in your word, Lord, so stimulating, so challenging, such a new world and new way of living you invite us into. And we know that not all the questions are answered today, but we do see, Jesus, your word clearly calling us to a radical place of loving enemies. We ask right now that your Holy Spirit would just speak to each heart. What does that look like in our life right now? Dance like David